0: Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Hello and a very warm welcome to Season 4, Episode 1 of Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence's Compliance Clarified podcast. My name is Susanna Hammond and I'm Senior Regulatory Intelligence Expert here at TRRI. Now in the first three seasons of the podcast, we covered an enormous range of topics ranging from sanctions, to cryptos, to culture, to personal accountability, diversity, data governance, and the evolving impact of financial crime. So now we're one year into our podcast, and I'm so pleased to be able to say that we're at around 17,000 downloads. So thank you so much for making Compliance Clarified such a success. Now, in the first episode of Series 4, we're looking at the issues, challenges, and concerns compliance officers need to consider for 2022. And I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Mike Cowan to chat through the list of 10 things.
1: Hi Susanna and a happy new year to you.
0: And happy new year to you too. Uh, Heading into 2022, I mean, for goodness sake, the pandemic really should have been in the rear view mirror, but instead the world is dealing with the impact of yet another variant of COVID-19. Now, many financial services firms had scheduled post-pandemic reviews, but those have now, by and large, morphed into a rolling review of the efficacy of hybrid working arrangements. As ever, risk and compliance officers will play a central role in preparing their firms for all eventualities. The list of issues for compliance officers to consider will, of course, be firm and business specific, but there are a number of areas which all compliance officers – regardless of jurisdictional sector, will need to consider in the coming year. So, Mike, we're going to pick up on a topic we spoke about previously, at least twice in this podcast. But so where are we with the shifting on individual accountability?
1: So just before I delve into individual accountability, uh, I'll just say that once again, there are some absolutely great points in, the, in this top 10. Um, many of them, I have to say, very large subjects, and we may only scratch the surface here. And I guess one of those is personal accountability. Um, I think it's interesting to note that the concept of personal liability for senior managers uh, is not a new one. Um, it is—it surprised me, but it's—it it's, is almost six years since the UK launched the, the world's first standalone personal accountability regime. Um, for senior managers, the senior managers and certification regime. Um, What is new is the changing perception of the potential sources of of liability and how regulators are interpreting accountability, and then the development of accountability regimes globally. Um, On that final point, on the development point, uh, compliance officers will see continued development of regimes uh, around the world. Not only in the UK, where SMCR is now new to uh, recognised investment exchanges, credit rating agencies and payment and e-money firms, but but regimes are being developed in Europe, Ireland are developing their own regime, Hong Kong is following the UK's example, and in the United States uh, they are expecting unprecedented focus on corporate accountability according to John Carlin, the Principal Associate and former Acting Deputy Attorney General. In the US, the SEC, the Securities Exchange Commission, has also taken a tougher approach towards enforcement and corporate accountability. I suppose booking the trend, though, is Australia, where regulators are expected to take a step back from the pursuit of personal accountability in 2022. Uh, This is because of the priorities such as post-pandemic economic recovery, the cyber risk, operational resilience, or or these we may touch on here, uh, take centre stage. However, it is expected that the regulators in Australia will use the personal accountability regime, the bear regime, to ensure that these threats are managed properly by firms. Um, In some ways, as we sit at the beginning of 2022, it's increasingly hard to to make the case that these regimes have delivered the results that many expected six years ago. Uh, There seems to be increased pressure on regulators, especially in the UK, to use these powers more. For example, sanctions imposed in respect of two money laundering cases, NatWest and HSBC, where no individual has been fined, have set the stage for confrontation between lawmakers and regulators about the lack of senior individuals being held to account. And to further the the debate, in October, the Treasury Select Committee in the UK wrote to the Chief Executive of the the Financial Conduct Authority, demanding to know how it was possible that no individual had been charged after HSBC uh, admitted three, uh, three counts of failing to comply with money laundering regulations then you have the different sources of personal liability there's a wide range of conduct issues that could be captured under personal accountability regimes we've seen fines on individuals for unauthorized activities and misleading regulators in dubai the ceo of barclays and the ceo of credit Suisse have have stepped down for conduct related issues and we've had instances of stealing sandwiches and failing to pay rail tickets All of these need to be considered in this space and all of which makes, you know, the compliance officer's job increasingly difficult, not only trying to encourage and monitor compliant behaviour in the wider organisation and trying to to spot these, uh, these instances of poor conduct, but also trying to comply with the details of the regimes themselves as Compliance officers and and the role of head of compliance, for example, is included within these personal accountability regimes.
0: Mike, thank you very much. Yes, I think uh, the sources of non-financial services misconduct is going to be something compliance officers really are going to have to to focus on. Um, Moving on to a very much a financial services source of misconduct and one that may well have been exacerbated by hybrid or non-office working environments is personal account dealing. Now, personal account dealing rules and requirements are in place for very, very good reasons. Market abuse not being the the least of them. Conflicts of interest, breaching, firewalls, all of those sorts of things. Now, the example I'm going to give, the issues here occurred pre-pandemic, but I would suggest that particularly given a hybrid working environment, firms need to really focus on personal account dealing rules and how they can make sure firms are complying with them and specifically the individuals are complying with them. The example I'm going to give is actually an Irish one um, and in March 2021 the Central Bank of Ireland, the regulator, reprimanded and fined J.E. Davy. Now, the fine was just north of €4 million euros for regulatory breaches arising from personal account dealing. And the reason why this is such a strong example is that J.E. Davy was, and I emphasise the was, Ireland's largest stockbroker, had the best part of 50,000 clients, €8.5 billion euros under management. However, its senior managers went out of their way to walk around the compliance protocols, the compliance infrastructure, the policies and procedures to personal account deal and in a massive conflict of interest. Now, (laughs) in fact, the uh, issues were such that the compliance function didn't actually find out that this had all gone on until well after the event when things were put into the public domain. You can imagine how good that looked for all concerned. It's a case worth looking at to double check and benchmark your approach to personal account dealing with and take it pretty much as a list of how not to do things. And just in the case of J.E. Davy, the fallout really has been profound. I and mean, chief executive has stepped down. Davy has lost its role as the primary dealer in Irish government debt. And now it's been sold. I would suggest making sure your your firm is not similarly compromised is well worth looking into in 2022. And talking of things that can make you quite literally vulnerable, I'll hand back over to Mike to talk about vulnerable customers.
1: Yes, quite a jump from personal account dealing to vulnerable customers. But uh, but here we go. So uh, a vulnerable customer is someone who, due to their personal circumstances, is especially susceptible to harm You so things like poor health low resilience in terms of coping with financial or emotional shocks uh low financial capabilities such as poor literacy or numeracy uh, and life events and this is an area which will continuously develop as financial servicing services offerings develop and as customers profiles change um However, at the moment, I think I would suggest two areas where compliance officers may need to to focus from a vulnerable customer's perspective. I think firstly, um, we've had two years of the pandemic and there is no no doubt that as a result, uh, a cohort of financial services customers will have been placed in financial difficulties and therefore classed as vulnerable customers. Regulators did react to the pandemic by flexing conduct rules um, to the situation in hand, and this left firms with with new requirements to comply with. However, now the pandemic is moving through, regulators have reversed those changes, and firms are now having to amend procedures and, and perhaps revert back to previous procedures. All of which is a real coordinating nightmare for compliance officers who really need to to keep on top of all of this and to keep up to speed with what um, regulations apply where, what changes have been made and what is and isn't compliant. And this is particularly the case for vulnerable customers, because these are the customers that will suffer the greatest as a result of any breach or non-compliance that the firm may uh, uh, may instigate so the first thing is the effect of the pandemic on vulnerable customers and the changes that have been made the second thing that I want to to raise is that firms now need to add to the list of vulnerability um, the possible impact of digital transformation many financial services firms have leveraged digital transformation and deployed enabling technologies in response to the pandemic But vulnerable customers risk being left behind by technological change, particularly for for that change has happened at speed and the firm perhaps hasn't had chance to uh, interact with the customer sufficiently enough. I think uh, the final point that I wish to make on vulnerable customers is the fact that in the UK um, in in 2022, the Financial Conduct Authority are. uh, um, looking to introduce their consumer duty of care which they're currently uh, consulting on and this may well have, a, have an impact on the way firms go about um, uh, managing their conduct risk. The duty of care is a set of proposals aimed at highlighting a higher standard of customer protection in the retail financial markets and so uh, 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 just a, a, another reason for why compliance officers need to focus in on this area.
0: Thank you very much, Mike. Um, And we are bouncing from topic to topic here. So what I'm going to now um, pick up the thread on is the challenges of diversity. Now, I'm pretty sure all of you will be all too familiar with the ESG agenda. So environmental social governance agenda. And of course, there has been an enormous focus on climate risk and so on and so forth. But under that regulatory umbrella is now also diversity. I mean, there's a bunch of, a slew of other social concerns, but under the S there is diversity and diversity brings a lot of challenges for firms, as you might imagine. Because not only are you as a firm going to have to figure out what good looks like for you, but there is absolutely no international coherence yet as to what good now looks like in terms of both policy requirements and then also disclosure requirements around this. I mean, we have some pension funds in the US which are saying that unless you have a certain number of women on the board or ethnic minorities on the board, actually, we're not going to invest in you anymore. So that sort of diversity is on one hand and all of this. But on the other hand, compliance officers need to get not necessarily take on their own plate but need to get involved in whether or not their firm truly has a comprehensive approach to diversity is that documented at what level has that been approved? has it been is it a boardroom agenda an item those sorts of things but also the risks associated with this it's such a new risk how do you quantify it you know what are you comparing apples with pears or are it are they all apples? So are you going to be able to, quantify and delineate those risks within your existing enterprise risk frameworks? Or do you need to do something else? If at all possible, I would suggest you probably want to be able to try to build it into your current risk infrastructure, simply because that's going to be an element of simplicity. But I wouldn't underestimate the challenges associated with that. The other element to this, which is where there's going to need to be really quite a lot of collaboration I would suggest within firms, is that there whether that you do this through a working group, committee meeting, under whatever um, badge you want to put it, but you are going to need to delineate the specific roles and responsibilities for compliance human resources and the risk management functions to make sure they can all work cohesively together, coherently together, to have a consistent approach to not only the policy that the firm is going to have to have, but also the disclosures that the firm is going to have to make. And then as part of all of that, of course, the firm is going to have to assess whether or not those functions all have the right talent and the required skill sets. Now, that may require something of a gap analysis to be undertaken to see, well, do we have the right skills? But I would also suggest that this is such a new area again, it's going to be perhaps very hard to find the skills. So you may have to build those from the ground up internally. But that, again, no bad thing, because then you have the skill sets internally. But diversity, I'm afraid, is very much now on the compliance agenda. And what compliance officers need to be able to do is try to get that into the existing enterprise risk management framework as a workable piece that then is included in the risk radars, maps, management information flows, and all of that sort of thing. Right. I'll hand back to Mike um, to talk about cyber resilience.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Susanna. Uh, And what I'm going to try and do here is I'm going to try and shoehorn cyber and operational resilience together. I think there's no doubt that cyber resilience is a key part of the wider operational resilience debate. I mean, information and cyber security risks have increased during the pandemic, um, with the financial uh, sector reporting to have been hit more often by cyber attacks than most other sectors since the pandemic started. In fact, Christine Lagarde, the chair of the European Central Bank, told Reuters Newsmaker in April 2021 that the greatest economic threat is that of cyber. This was echoed by Wayne Byers, the chair of the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority, when in a speech he said that cyber presents arguably the most difficult prudential threat. It's driven by malicious and adaptive adversaries who are intent on causing damage. Risk and compliance officers need to ensure that their their, their information security and cyber risks are included in the range of risks considered and that the board can discuss the actions taken to ensure all reasonable steps have been taken to embed cyber resilience throughout the firm. So from the smaller cohort of cyber resilience, I just want to move on to operational resilience. And in 2021, we saw significant work by a load of regulators, the BAL committee, uh, the EU with their, with their Digital Operational Resilience Act, DORA, the US regulators of the Federal Reserve, the Office of the Control of the Currency and the, uh, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the Hong Kong and Irish regulators. And I'm sure I've missed out a load as, uh, a, a load as well. And in 2022, some of this groundwork comes to fruition. For example, in the UK, new rules on operational resilience kick in from the 31st of March 2022. One of the areas areas regulators are expressing concerns about, in particular, is financial services increasing resilience on a small group of cloud computing providers. Cloud and other outsourcing providers bring great benefits to financial services, but they are increasingly viewed as systemic operational resilience risk. Policy related to big tech firms in particular is under development. I mean, in the UK, regulators plan two consultations, operational resilience incident reporting and outsourcing and third-party risk management register for the first half of 2022. In the EU, DORA looks set to be the first worldwide in terms of getting big tech to uh, to engage in financial sector operational resilience work eu policymakers should fi- should finalize the dora proposal in early 2022 thereby introducing an oversight regime for cloud providers and setting common standards for it risk and cybersecurity um for participants in the financial s- system compliance officers need to fully engage with the regulatory requirements about resilience whether that be operational or cyber resilience feedback suggests that on operational resilience that some firms have underestimated the requirements and are not fully on board this makes the compliance officer's job more difficult as this suggests a more fundamental cultural systemic issue at the firm rather than a direct problem with complying with the specific regulatory requirements that that the, oper- the regulators are putting forward from an operational resilience perspective.
0: Thank you. Yes, um, I, I talk about operational resilience in the introduction to the My 10 Things article, which is slightly cheating and making it 11. But yes, absolutely, operational resilience is totally something compliance need to have on their radar and be fully up to speed on. And, you know, very much associated with that is the whole concept of hybrid working, flexible working, however you wish to badge it. And despite the sort of almost yo-yo, oh, we're back to the office, oh no, we're not, that has been going on with the various variants of of COVID, I would suggest that at least some form of hybrid working is here to stay. Um, It has been proof of concept of remote working and compliance functions have by and large adapted to hybrid and flexible working arrangements. But there are some measures that you need to think about with how you wish to take some of these forward as permanent changes, what other changes and flexibility are needed as the pandemic continues. Now, as a checklist for compliance officers to refer to, firms really could do worse than a codification that the UK Financial Conduct Authority came out with in the autumn. And I'll give you a few of them. Um, Do you have a plan in place which has been reviewed before making any temporary arrangements permanent? And is it reviewed periodically to identify any new risks? Is there appropriate governance and oversight by senior managers under the senior managers regime, committees and so on? And is this government capable of being maintained? Can you cascade policies and procedures to reduce the potential for financial crime? Can you put an appropriate culture in place? Can, critically, control functions such as risk compliance and internal audit carry out their functions unaffected, such as when listening to client calls or reviewing files? There is a bit of a shopping list there from the UK regulator. And yes, I know it's UK, but the points they raise are absolutely geography neutral. They are very much focused on how a compliance function and a risk function would and could be able to undertake its activities successfully. Geography neutral doesn't matter where the, where your employees are. Um, In a nutshell, what the UK regulator said, it is important that any form of remote or hybrid working adopted should not risk or compromise the firm's ability to follow all rules, regulatory standards and obligations or lead to a failure to meet them. I would suggest gap analysis against that list would be a very useful step in terms of your... Post-pandemic review, if you're lucky enough to be in that position, or how you morph into a continuing pandemic review. Back over to Mike to look at uh, climate risk reporting.
1: In this relay run that we are, that, that we are, currently, <laughs> we are indeed. In. Yes, yes. And apologies for listening, still uh, listeners, for the for the piecemeal approach to this. But uh, the ten things were were quite disparate and quite uh, self-standing issues. So uh, climate risk reporting, um, at a minimum, uh, 2022 looks set to be the year that financial services firms um, continue to implement some of the regulatory initiatives that have been uh, under preparation for the past few years in the climate risk space. Um, There is a whole raft of regulatory initiatives at international, national and regional level, which could have serious consequences for firms that fail to assess and address their climate exposure. For example, at an international level, the International Sustainability Standards Board, uh, disclosure standards, will become the international reporting benchmark on sustainability matters. Transition plans, disclosure, stress testing will be top priorities for European and, and, and UK regulators in 2022. Statements from the UK FCA and the PRA from the European Securities and Markets Authority and the European Central Bank should leave firms in no doubt that these are areas that are seen as very important to regulators and uh, firms should be on notice uh, for um, um, uh, appropriate action, shall we say, um, should they fall beneath what is expected of them. In December December 2021, ECB officials made it clear that the results of initial round of self-assessed climate stress testing were inadequate. Not one of the 1,600 Eurozone banks that participated have fully quantified their climate risk. That led to to Andrea Enrea, Chair of the Supervisory Board of the ECB, stating that the regulator could not rule out supervisory action for firms with similarly poor results in 2022. In October, ESMA instructed financial regulators across the the, the 27 member states to prioritise greenwashing in their annual review of corporate financial statements. Lawyers have warned that firms misallocating investment products under the Sustainable Financial Disclosure Regulations, SFDR, could face civil as well as regulatory action for greenwashing. Regulators in the United States plan to issue new proposals on environmental and social disclosure rules as well, um, as well as on the supervision of banks as they manage the transition towards a greener economy. The precise timing is uncertain, but the the SEC is expected to to announce proposed disclosure rules in the early part of the year. The SEC's um, ESG disclosure proposals will also include human capital management and and board diversity, to follow on from Susanna's piece earlier. The Monetary Authority of Singapore is is to set out a roadmap for mandatory climate-related financial disclosures for financial companies. With the aim of embedding climate risk considerations into supervisory framework firms will have to be able to regularly collect collate manage and reproduce millions of data points compliance officers need to be involved with the design and implementation of controls around this for compliant disclosures for climate disclosures rather and need to regularly check that the figures being produced meet the requirements of the regulations. As a number of regulators have now said, breaches or non-compliance with these rules could lead to significant action.
0: Yes, and I would weave into that, that financial services firms do not have the best track record with that sort of reporting. I mean, here in the UK, the transaction reporting uh, failures, that puts it slightly mildly, have been profound. The the transaction reporting requirements under MiFID one, millions upon millions of pounds worth of fines because firms just couldn't get it right. Firms cannot allow their climate risk reporting to go down that track. They have got to get it right, and they've got to get it right first time. The reputational damage will be awful if they don't. It really yeah,
1: will. Completely. And automation and, and digital solutions are obviously going to be a part of this. And they uh, and uh, f- as you say, firms track record of, of, of uh, having the facilities to introduce digital solutions may be impaired because of things like legacy systems. Uh, but also, as you say, the controls that they put put around these have historically been found to be weak, which I thought was a very nice link, Susanna, because I believe you're speaking about digital transformation next.
0: Oh, I am. Yes, digital transformation <laughs> and cryptos. Yeah. Um, Honestly, it depends which, which almost which hour of the day you're talking about cryptos as to which update you're going to go for. Um, I'll start talking about the the particular uh, sort of digital transformation that is cryptos by simply saying there needs to be regulatory certainty. Um, you know, cryptos can be treated as a currency, as an investment, as a security, or nothing at all—not outside the financial services. Uh, regime outside of the regulatory perimeter. I mean, just in the last couple of weeks, just to sort of give you a vignette of the extremes we're now looking at in Spain, Singapore and the UK, there are proposals now in place for very much limiting the advertising of cryptos, particularly the advertising of cryptos to retail customers. Fair enough. We also have the Central Bank of Russia, who is proposing basically banning the issuance and mining of cryptos um, for everybody. However, it is also considering a digital ruble. On the flip side to that, in the US, there is currently an extremely glossy, slick um, TV advertising campaign fronted by Matt Damon advertising cryptos. You know, take your pick on the regulatory spectrum as to where all of this is. Now, to come back to the kind of the the challenges for compliance officers, we have got something that has the great potential to be a fundamental enabler for financial services firms. Opportunities and benefits arising from cryptos with regard to payments and transfers and all sorts of things are potentially vast. But... They have to be within a regulatory framework that is consistent, coherent and understood. And we will add in also the cyber resilience, which Mike has already picked up. Of course, they need to be cyber resilient. So compliance officers need to basically keep their and completely open mind on cryptos. It is an incredibly fast moving space. I would suggest the regulators aren't perhaps moving as fast as the crypto industry itself. Um, One of the areas which may end up being a complete game changer for all of this is central bank digital currencies. Now, as we speak, that none of the G7 have actually said they're going to do it. Um, In the US, there is a consultation paper, not quite saying we're considering central bank digital currencies, but more we're considering the concept of central bank digital currencies. Please give us your thoughts. Here in the UK, There is a consultation, the initial consultation from the Bank of England and HM Treasury saying, well, we're thinking about central bank digital currencies. But even here, the Treasury Select Committee has put out a paper saying central bank digital currencies are a solution looking for a problem. There is an awful lot that needs to come together in some sort of coherence on cryptos if we really are going to be able to reap all of the potential benefits there. So I I wish I could say on these are the three things compliance officers need to do about cryptos. I mean, by the time I'd finished speaking, those three things would be out of date. It is an area you are going to have to watch like a hawk. And I would suggest, whilst there is a huge amount for compliance functions to get involved in, please engage with regulators on cryptos, respond to the consultations, get involved, if need be, lobby, whatever, the one thing the crypto space digital transformation space cannot afford is bad regulation bad regulation will just have so many unintended negative consequences so please engage on regulators with regulators on cryptos we need the regulatory certainty we need the coherence of approach to cryptos you know what is a crypto is it an asset i mean we're, we're back to um Madame Lagarde, in, in one of the Reuters newsmakers, came out with a very clear statement. There's no such thing as crypto cryptocurrencies. They're all crypto assets. Well, terrific. So how do we then get see them regulated? And what does that mean for compliance functions? It's a watching brief on cryptos and it's a brief you're going to have to stay very involved in. And I wish I could say the next segue was completely unrelated, but sadly not completely unrelated to cryptos. So I'm, I'm going to pass back to Mike to talk about financial crime.
1: Yes, I am going to mention cryptos, but only in passing, I have to say, because the financial crime is a huge topic, uh, one that is a, per, a, a perennial concern to firms and compliance officers, uh, still deserves to be in the top 10, don't get me wrong, but it's nevertheless a huge topic. So let me see if I can break this down into a couple of elements. So let's start with money laundering. Um, There seems to be a renewed focus on money laundering from the regulators. An example of this is, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the UK FCA concluded with two enforcement actions against NatWest and HSBC, resulting in large fines and the regulator's first criminal conviction under the UK's money laundering regulations 2017. Developments that are predicted for 2022 include the EU member states facing greater pressure from the EU Commission to catch up with anti-money laundering directives, to try to reduce fragmentation of the market and to lay the groundwork for, for the Commission's plans for a stronger um, uh, money laundering uh, anti-money laundering regime. Last year, the EU Commission launched a package of proposals, including the introduction of a single rule book for anti-money laundering, introducing rules in the areas of customer due diligence and beneficial ownership and setting up an EU-level anti-money laundering authority. There was also a sixth anti-money laundering directive, as well as revisions to the 2015 regulation on fund transfers to ensure all types of crypto assets are covered. In the UK, the UK government in 2022 uh, are looking to kickstart its economic crime plan and make good on promises to improve suspicious activity reporting and prevent the use of its corporate register by criminals. In the US, the US Treasury Department's Anti-Money Laundering Unit is issuing new and amended regulations implementing the Anti-Money Laundering Act of 2020 and the Corporate Transparency Act. These laws promise to significantly alter the anti-money laundering landscape for international financial institutions as the Treasury works with regulators, law enforcement agencies, financial institutions themselves and other stakeholders to try and improve the effectiveness of US anti-money laundering regime. It's interesting that that, that a side effect of of this and a side effect of the enforcements that are going on, and indeed the past enforcements that that have happened on money laundering, is that these have all been in the traditional financial services sector around banking or or other types of authorised financial services activity, whereas... Now, the move may well be to, for the regulators to look at non-regulated areas uh, uh, where money laundering could be a greater risk, such as casinos, bullion dealers, and, and other non-designated, non-financial uh, businesses and professionals. And 2022 may well see a heightened risk of enforcement in these areas. So that's money laundering. The second point I want to make is around uh, the impact of the post-pandemic. So, some factors, like I say, are pandemic-related, with concerns about the rise of cyber-enabled financial crime. An update from the Financial Action Task Force in December 2020 considered changes in behaviour because of the pandemic, whether that of individuals, companies or governments, and which have in turn presented criminals with new, mainly cyber, opportunities to commit crimes and launder the proceeds. The shift towards digital transactions and an acceptance that digital identity will be critical to the post COVID 19 economy is a key risk in this area. Other risks that may have developed in 2020 uh, because of the pandemic are the money laundering risks in the post cash economy and the financial crime risks evolving around other areas, such as the development of cryptos and the cybersecurity risk that we mentioned earlier. Moving on, I suppose, which is slightly pandemic related, but moving away from the pandemic type issues, uh, other factors will include things like the international sanction regimes. All firms are aware that a sanctions compliance programme is a core competency. A risk-based approach to sanctions monitoring has always been part of a financial services firm's obligations regarding the combating of financial crime. Sanctions screening, sanctions compliance and evidence in compliance with other under and overlapping requirements remains a challenge. A few of the more immediate concerns needing compliance consideration are the approach to Afghanistan following the Taliban takeover, the emerging use of sanctions against a crypto exchange deemed deemed to be a conduit for illicit funds and the implications of the Chinese counter foreign sanctions law and I'll add to this list the 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 potential for sanctions against Russia as part of the 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 Ukraine crisis. Like I say, from a financial crime point of view, I may only have touched the surface here, but this is just a flavor of things that compliance officers need to be aware of as we move into 2022.
0: Thank you, yes, and and, um, I suspect this last point, which is number 10, I'm sure you'll be relieved to hear, um, is skills. And the critical need for the right, preferably in-house skills. Now, the sheer breadth of what compliance functions are now expected to have to deal with um, means that compliance functions really do need to either have the skills themselves within the function or have very easy access to that skills and knowledge. You know what? And that's a very easy thing for me to say, but you begin to look at some of the new challenges, climate, diversity, enhanced operational resilience, the implications of digital transformation and cryptos. What skills do you need? You, I would suggest um, at least once this year, firms, particularly their compliance functions, are going to need to do a very careful, critical, granular gap analysis on the skills they have in-house. And I think the compliance function needs to look very long and hard. Does it need to up, upgrade the skills it has? Does it need new skills to come in? And if it does, what are those skills and why? How do those skills help the firm meet its strategic direction? Um, you know, Because going down one particular avenue with regard to climate risk, terrific. Build those skill sets. But if you take a different approach, you'll need a slightly different skill set. And I mean, that's perhaps nowhere more stark than with cryptos. I mean, you know, one person's API or DEFI or central bank digital currency, it's not the same as having a non-fungible token. You're going to have to tailor your skill sets to what you are going to be doing strategically and keep it under review. And the other thing I would say with all of that is that Given many of these skill sets are perceived as new, particularly around climate, around crypto, there's going to be an awful lot of competition for them. So you may have to breathe deeply and invest and choose to invest in those skills because people are going to people, other firms and regulators are all going to be competing for those particular skills. So. On that, we have done a whistle-stop tour through 10 things for compliance officers to think about in 2022. Of course, there will be others for them to think about. Um, But one thing I would add in, in terms of a takeaway for compliance officers is the need for planning around all of this. We've touched on 10 big topics But the sheer sweep of regulatory change that is continuing to go on out there is enormous. And compliance functions need to plan and plan ahead to the best of their possible ability. And in a wider sense, I would also say don't underestimate quite how widely or indeed thinly compliance officers are beginning to be spread. And this isn't just skills. It it may be just sheer numbers of warm bodies or reg tech solutions, however you are. Populating your compliance functionality in that sense, you will probably need to consider the adequacy of your risk and compliance resources. And again, consider the need that you might really need to invest in those. Um, I'm extremely biased on this subject, but I think the one of the best investments firms can do is to invest robustly and consistently in your compliance functionality. It will save you so much trouble in the future. So takeaways from compliance officers, Mike?
1: Well, I think my main takeaway, and I think you've you've alluded to it in a a, a couple of your um, um, uh, sections earlier, is the need for firms to have a holistic view of their risks. And that includes the regulatory compliance risks that compliance officers and firms face. Um, Compliance officers need to work closely with risk officers and money laundering reporting officers um, to align their approaches and the assessment of risks. I mean, ultimately here, boards need to have a clear and accurate view of, the, of all the risks that their firms are vulnerable to. Um, and in order to, to uh, uh, this is basic to making risk management within a firm work, of which compliance is very much a, a, an integral part of that. Uh, compliance officers need to have that, that input to the assessment of risks. I mean, it's vital for a board to have a compliance officer's view. But equally, the, all, the, the, the risks that perhaps we've raised today and other risks that compliance officers face will have other angles to them and, 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 and other elements. And it's keen that the board receive a holistic view of those risks so that they can make appropriate decisions. Uh, regulatory risk is 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 significant in firms don't get me wrong um um, and the compliance officers are expert in that um but like i say working closely with the other uh, control functions is vital for for boards to be able to get a clear picture of not only internal risks but external risks in particular where the regulators are coming from on particular issues
0: ah wholeheartedly agree and and Mike, thank you very much as ever for your contribution. And thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Clarified. We hope you found it both interesting and useful. I'll include a link to the 10 things piece itself in the episode notes. I'll also include a link to our cost of compliance survey for 2022, which is now open. And as usual, I'll include a link for further information on Thomson Reuters regulatory intelligence itself. Last but not least, as ever, very much appreciated if you could take the time to review the podcast and do let us know any suggestions for future topics. Thanks for listening. Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence.